morning, Hope. Oh, it's a better day than that. Good morning, Hope. Both the teams won, so we're good there. Three-day weekend, that's awesome. We're here together. We're looking at this list of rules handed down from on high, the Ten Commandments, as a part of our current message series called Here We Stand, which is a confirmation refresher. Now, if you didn't grow up in a, in a tradition or a church that offered confirmation class, it's okay. I didn't either. Uh, confirmation is simply what we have our middle school students go through every year that help teach them the, the foundational principles of what it means to follow Jesus. So as adults, it's important for us to review those things as well. Uh, if you have a middle school student, you'd still like to get registered for Power Life. It's not too late to do that uh, starting on Wednesday nights, and that'll be great for them as well. But the Ten Commandments are a part of these, these core ideas of what it means to, to follow God. I realized, though, as I was preparing for this weekend, praying about what I wanted to talk about, what I felt like God wanted us to discuss together, I realized that a lot of the ways that I perceive the Ten Commandments come more from culture than from Scripture. You know, what's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about the Ten Commandments? For me, it's a handful of movies, right? The actual Ten Commandments movie, Prince of Egypt, Exodus a few years ago, maybe some documentaries or TV shows or actual courthouse cases of, of property and that kind of thing. It's, it's almost as if popular culture ha has completely co-opted this, this core spiritual element of our faith. And I think we have need to go back to what does the Bible say about the Ten Commandments, but also what contextually can we learn so that we can recapture the spiritual dimension of this list, this passage of Scripture. So that's what I want to do this morning. How can we recapture the spiritual dimension of the, of the Ten Commandments and this passage of Scripture? In order for us to do that, though... We have to go thousands of years back in time to the people of Israel who are coming out of captivity from Egypt into freedom. The Hebrew people had been a part of Egyptian culture, actually, for generations. They came to the Nile River Delta following Joseph and his 11 brothers, and they settled there. Joseph became a governor of the land of Egypt, and they lived side by side, these two cultures, for a period of time, until the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 1 that a king of Egypt rose up who did not remember Joseph, didn't remember Joseph or the special relationship these cultures shared for a period of time, and he decided that the Hebrew people were now a problem. There were too many of them. They, that there wasn't enough room in the kingdom for both of these cultures to coexist and that they needed to become slaves and put into hard labor so that they wouldn't overtake the Egyptian kingdom. And that's what happened. And again, several generations go by after that. This is one of the problems of only relying on cultural descriptions of spiritual elements. Uh, it, it, it's hard to condense into two hours what it took hundreds of years to unfold. Generations of slavery in Egypt under hard labor and a part of that culture you know, they retained their, their heritage, their stories, their, their understanding of who God was, but they're also now, for generations, hundreds of years, the Bible tells us, in this Egyptian community as slaves. Until it says in Exodus chapter 2, God says, I, I hear the cries of my people, I see their oppression, and I have decided to act. And so he raises up Moses to be the leader who's going to, to lead his people out of captivity. Moses, who was himself born an Israelite and raised in Pharaoh's palace, he uses him as a leader to, to guide his people out of slavery. And that's where we get Moses with the, the ten plagues of Egypt, right? The parting of the Red Sea. And now God's people are free. Free for the first time in hundreds of years. And immediately they are terrified by the prospect of encountering the stark realities of freedom. Separated from the life they had only, one life they had only ever known. What, what is a people who, who have been 
in captivity for generations supposed to do with, to them, nothing. Freedom meant emptiness, void, no system of government, no rules, no structure, no land, no place to go, wandering in the wilderness. It becomes such a problem even before God parts the Red Sea. They're standing at the banks of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is bearing down behind them. Many of them start complaining to Moses saying, why did you make us leave Egypt? And they just got out. Why did you make us leave? Can't we just go back? Sure, it was slavery and it was hard labor, but at least we had shelter, we had food, and we had an identity. We knew who we were in Egypt. We don't know who we are out here now. That was familiar and this is uncomfortable. Uh, This week at Hope Ankeny, we're celebrating our six-month anniversary of being a a site for Celebrate Recovery, leading Celebrate Recovery. Yeah, leading Celebrate Recovery. An awesome program designed to help people from all walks of life dealing with whatever pathology is holding you captive to get out of that and to walk with other brothers and sisters into freedom. And a lot of people think that it's just for folks with substance abuse issues, and it certainly is, but there's more to it than that. People who struggle with all kinds of more socially acceptable addictions like work or food or possessions or if you're like me and struggle with depression or anger and and those kinds of issues, Celebrate Recovery is for you. But what you discover, talking to people who have battled addiction for a lot of their lives, is that same kind of mentality that that once you leave behind such such an important part, a critical part, a, a huge part of your identity in your addiction and come into freedom, yes, the freedom is awesome. But you've lost something. Something's missing. There's now an emptiness that is a temptation to go back to. Not just the behavior, but the identity that you identified with for so long. And that's where the people of Israel were at this point in time. Giving up the only thing that they had ever known, the only life they had ever known, and coming into freedom. And it's in that context where we find God giving His laws to this people. Because God is far too loving, far too merciful and generous to allow His people to allow you to wander through life without a plan, without guides, without purpose, without meaning. God does not want you to walk through life that way. He didn't want His people to wander through that desert that way without a purpose and a plan. And so He gives them this law. The Ten Commandments are a part of it. What's interesting, though, when Moses goes up on the, on, the, on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, they get to the Sinai Peninsula, and Moses goes up to receive these Ten Commandments. The interesting thing is that the, the passage of Scripture that we read today don't call these Ten Commandments as though it's some numbered list. And even if you were to talk to a, a person of the Jewish faith today, they don't call these the Ten Commandments. If you look in your Bible, the first verse we read today, Exodus 20, verse 1, it says, "...then the Lord gave His people these instructions." And many Bibles, thankfully, have a little asterisk and a note that say the Hebrew there means words. The Jewish people today still call these the ten words. The Hebrew word is dabar. And and this is significant. So we're looking at context today. We're looking at not just the the words on the page, but what's going on in the world around these words. What's the people experiencing? Who, Who did God write this to and what was their life like? What's happening in the world around it? But also what language was this in? given in the Hebrew language. And so we're not going to spend too much time on this. Uh, It's been a few years since I was in Hebrew class, so I don't want to do this a lot. This is the first three of the words in the original language in Hebrew. And even just a basic understanding is helpful here. So not spending too much time, what you see here, reading right to left, the first word you encounter is is the word lo, pronounced lo. 
It doesn't have a direct translation. All it is is a marker that indicates whatever comes after is in the negative voice. Because that's what the, you know, we hear the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, you must not. So it's in the negative voice, and that's what that indicates. But Hebrew does something else that's very interesting. It uses verb tense to assign meaning. So like past, present, and future, those tense endings on, on the verbs indicate meaning. And in the Hebrew, the way that you indicated negative voice was to use the future tense ending. This is significant because our typical translations, thou shalt not and you must not, which, which are perfectly acceptable, right? Those are in the future. If you read it just in the simple Hebrew, what you hear is, you will not. You will not have other gods before me. You will not have idols of any kind. You will not make a misrepresentation of the name of the Lord. When you read it like that, and you take into account what the Hebrew people are going through, what they're coming out of and into, what this starts to sound like are a list of promises that God is making to his people. Even sounds like wedding vows to me when I read it. Things that we say to our spouses on our wedding day of, of when we're, we're joined together as one and, and I will love you and keep you and I will cherish you and honor you from this day until forever. That's what I think God is doing here. He even speaks to that just a few verses earlier in Exodus 19.5. Now, if you obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on the earth. God is saying, in a covenant relationship with you, these are what life, this is what life will be like as we are together. If you give your life completely to God, this is what you can expect your new reality to be, these ten words. We struggle with this in Christianity because... Um, partly because of the cultural representations, like we're just taught to think this is a list of ten rules. If I don't follow them, the purpose is for God to discipline me over them. I have broken the rules, and God will now punish me. That's how we've just grown up thinking about them, for the most part. That's how I grew up thinking about them. But also, historical theology has kind of played into that, Christian theology. Over the last couple of weeks, and we've been in this message series covering the, 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 the key elements of what it means to be a Christian and uh, you know, talking about the history of the, the Protestant Reformation and Martin Luther, and we call ourselves the Lutheran Church of Hope. But you've heard us say, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, that we don't say that because we worship Martin Luther or any of the Reformers. We identify with the legacy, but we don't worship the person because while they got a lot of things right, some of the things they just missed. And I think Martin Luther, because of his context, missed the, the beauty and the love in the statement that God is making here about his laws. Partly, again, because of Luther's culture. You know, if you, think, if you think of this issue like a pendulum, and the perfect dead center is a, is, a, is a perfect understanding of the relationship between God's law and God's grace, which I don't think anybody has ever perfectly interpreted, maybe except for Jesus, the Catholic Church in Luther's day had the pendulum swung way over here where it said, it's only by your works that you can be saved. You have to earn God's grace. You have to follow the Ten Commandments perfectly. If you don't, you need to pay the church money so that you don't go to hell. That was where the pendulum had swung. So Luther, reading the Bible again for the first time in the original language, Erasmus, during Luther's day, just before then, got the scriptures into Greek and was working on Hebrew. So they're seeing this fresh just 500 years ago and saying, that's not what God said. God said you don't earn salvation. It's by grace alone, through faith. And so in an attempt to swing the pendulum back the other direction and try to get it to center, Luther kind of overshot it and said, there's grace, which is true but a very negative perspective, a very negative understanding of God's laws and even his character in the Old Testament. Uh, Luther had two ways of understanding the law. And even at the end of this passage that he wrote, he said, and that's all I've got to say about that. He said, 
the law is like a bridle. That's his one metaphor for the law, like the apparatus on a horse that's used for control. The law is like that. And then the law is also like a hammer, literally to beat the unrighteousness out of us. And that's all he had to say about that. Again, because he wanted to focus on the grace of God that hadn't been covered for hundreds of years in the church and recapture that element, which was vitally important. But if all you think of when you think of God's laws is a bit and a bridle, this control and punishment, you're missing the profound love that's here. What God is doing for a new covenant people who are free for the first time and without identity, and he's saying, I promise that when you're my people, when you give yourselves fully to me, this is what life will be like for you. And he, said, he says that to us too, what your life could be like. And Old Testament theologians today really encourage this kind of reading because, again, it gets us in and behind the perspective of what the Hebrews must have been seeing as this is happening for them. Uh, Gerhard von Rad, which is just the coolest name for a theologian ever. I think I'm going to change my last name to von Rad. He's a Christian, but he said this, Israel did not understand the Decalogue, the ten words, as an absolute moral law prescribing ethics. She rather recognized it as a revelation vouchsafed to her at a particular moment in her history through which she was offered the saving gift of life. There had never been anything like this. This was good news to this people who was lost and wandering and hurting and didn't know where to go. And all of a sudden, God, who is a loving father, like we who are parents don't give our kids rules and, 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 and guidelines so that we can punish them later, it's because we love them. We don't want them to get hurt. We don't want them to be lost or get into trouble. That's what God's doing in this. I first recognized this tension a long time ago when I was reading actually in the Psalms. And it's interesting when you read other Old Testament passages about the law that are so in love with it. It, it, it sounds odd to us from where we come from. In, ex, in Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in Scripture, it says, I have rejoiced in your law as much as in riches. Your laws please me. I cling to your laws. I will walk in freedom for I have devoted myself to your commandments. Now, how can it be that this people so desperately, deeply loved these instructions and yet we have such a negative view of them as a list of rules sent down from on high to beat us up? It's because the beauty that's here is something that we've missed and we need to recapture that as a part of our own spirituality. What, are, what is God promising here? What, what, what was he promising then, and what are those promises for us today? So I'm, I'm going to reference them as, as promises from here on out. Um, we're going to be studying the first three today. The next seven, Pastor Scott, will talk about next week. Those are kind of categorically put together because the first three deal with what our life will be like when we give ourselves completely to God, our relationship between us and God. That's what the first three cover. The other seven cover what our relationship will be with other people as God's covenant people. And so this first promise that it gives us in Exodus 20, 3 through 4, says, You will not have any other God but me. You will not make for yourself an idol of any kind. Now, this is important, again, to look at what the Hebrew people had been experiencing for generations. Coming out of the, the kingdom of Egypt that had about 50 different gods. I had to go online and count them up. I didn't just know that. 50 didn't, different gods for everything representing natural elements to celestial bodies to large cities. Pharaohs were considered gods. You could combine them together to make a hybrid to suit your needs. And the idea was that you would sacrifice and pray to whichever god you thought would give you the desired outcome, right? So if you were struggling with your crops, you'd pray for rain, but you would also were afraid you weren't offending some other... I know it sounds silly. 
I know that it sounds to us very silly that this was their perspective, but you really have to consider what it would have been like to live in a time that had no scientific understanding for what was going on in the world at all. No idea that, that what, what diseases were that could kill you, why people died, why the earth shook, why the river flooded. It just did. And so you worshipped the things and tried to placate other gods because you felt like those were the forces at work in your world, and it was confusing and it was difficult. They were at war with, with themselves. Who's, who's got control of my life? Who's, who's running the show? And I believe that's something that you and I can identify with. I can, at least. In my own life, you know, I don't, we don't live in an overtly polytheistic culture anymore, but, but there is a, an internal struggle with who's in charge of my life. Who tells me how to feel and what to think and, and which way to go? And I struggle this way and that, being pulled by different things in this world that tell me where value comes from and, and, and what my purpose really is. And, and God says to this people, and he's saying it to you, the promise is, is that when you give your heart fully to him, when you become God's covenant people, you don't have to worry about that anymore. You don't have to worry about who's got control of your... I have control. I'm in control. There's only one God and I am Him. And if you follow me, you can trust my purposes and direction for your life. That's the promise of what it's like to give your life to God. No other gods to worry about. No other influences in your life to knock you around. And it's a beautiful promise. And the second part of this, you will not make for yourself an idol of any kind, fits in the same idea because, again, that was a struggle for the Hebrew people. All those different Egyptian gods, well, they had icons and representations. This was the god that looked like a bird or a, a jackal or the sun or whatever they, they came up with. And all that really was was their attempt at understanding what is God. It's a big question that I'm sure you've asked. What is God? How do we worship something we can't see? And that's what they encounter when they're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive God's law to talk to him. He's up there for a while, and the Hebrew people start to get worried. Did he just leave? And they say to Aaron, his brother, and their priest, they say, we need to know what this God looks like. He led us out of Egypt, and we're grateful. He parted the Red Sea, so he's obviously powerful. Show us what he looks like so that we can worship him. That was their motivation. So they gather up all the gold in the camp. And they make the golden calf that they say, I can get on board with this. That's what God looks like. I can worship it. I can see it. I can experience something. It's tangible to me. And that's when Moses comes back down the mountain with the stone tablets that are engraved on, on them, the law, and he smashes them because that's breaking the law. And he has to go back up to Kinko's in heaven to have another set rolled off, printed up a new one. That's, that's, what's at, what's that, that's what they're working on. What does God look like? And maybe you've asked that question. Who is he? What is he? How do I worship this invisible, eternal thing? Part of the law that Moses brought down, it wasn't just the ten promises and these words. It was all of the law, and part of that was how to worship God. His instruction, he was going to lay it out for them. This is how you can worship me. Part of that was the tabernacle, this traveling temple that was a tent they could set up and tear down and move with them wherever they went. And part of that was God wanting them to understand God's not in a place He's not bound to a certain location or building or geographical region of the world. God's everywhere. And in this tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And it went out before the Israelites as they wandered. Now this Ark was, a, again, another cultural, pop culture representation. Thank you uh, to the great Steven Spielberg. The Ark was a, a box plated in gold on all sides and on the inside. And on the top was a lid. 
and on the lid was engraved, carved, certain angelic figures. Now what this would have looked like, again, looking through the eyes of the people who were seeing it for the first time, this looked like a throne to them, what a king or a ruler or a god might sit on. And God's intentional design is that while there are angels carved on here and a throne, there is nothing sitting on the throne. Because God doesn't look like anything. God, in fact, is not a thing. And he wanted his people, he wants us to be reminded that God is not a thing. Every time you see this, he was telling his Hebrew people, and worship me, you're not worshiping some created thing. I am the one who created everything. God is saying symbolically through this simple artifact that they carried. We struggle with that. That's a struggle for us, for me. Because we have a tendency as, as a human creature to want to bring God down to an understandable, manageable level. We want to understand what God looks like. How do I relate to God? How do I get along with Him, interact with Him? In Christianity, this is especially difficult because we, we talk a lot, a great deal about the, the imminence of God, that God is near to us. God came down as His Son, Jesus Christ, who lived a life here on this earth Emmanuel, God was with us, and he gave his life so that if we put our faith in him, we can have a forever relationship with Jesus, and if we do that, we have the Holy Spirit who comes and lives inside of us. God is near, and we talk about it a lot, but his nearness does not also mean that he is not transcendent, that he is omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, outside of the created order of things. That is where God properly lives. And we have to be reminded of that constantly if we forget that we try to bring God down to our level in all sorts of ways. Martin Luther says that whatever then thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly God. And what is that for you? What is it really that you rely on, cling to for security, for support, again, for direction, what's pulling you this way and that? Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, and even if you're new, you've probably heard somebody like me stand in a place like this and say, you know, all kinds of things about how you can make gods of, of money and time and work and family, and that's true. I don't feel particularly compelled to get into that because you've probably heard it before or can figure it out that you can make, yes, gods of all sorts of things. What I do see is particularly important for us to talk about, especially in relation to God's promises and his identity, really, is the struggle that we as Christians have of bringing God down to our level by making idols of our own faith. That in many ways, we make an idol, a God of our religion, instead of worshiping God himself. We will worship our traditions, we will worship our elements, we will worship our styles, our opinions, because they're about God, they are about him, but they are not him. So to illustrate that a little bit, let's watch this clip together. Now, depending on your, your background or your worldview, that's, that's going to hit you in a different way. And this is not about pointing fingers about them. This is something I see all of us doing to certain degrees. And what I hope you see here, after we've been talking about it for a little bit, is the irony of ascribing worth to, which is our definition of worship. Our, de our word worship comes from the word worth, Ascribing worth to a statue that literally has on it instruction not to do that thing. That's what's going on. And it happens in a lot of different ways in Christianity. Again, what are the things about our faith that we're tempted to worship to make sense of God that are more important to us than God himself? 
Because it was not God's forever desire that the law, that his promises live engraved in blocks of stone on relics. This is from Hebrews chapter 10, and it's quoting the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. God saying, this is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them, I will engrave them on their minds. It's using a very specific set of words to call attention to how the laws were once engraved on stones. God's desire is that they would be engraved on your hearts. That God wouldn't be some objective, far-off, cold, distant thing to you because God is not an object. That God would become internal to you, a part of who you are, your new identity. That's God's desire. And that's his promise for what life can be like when you give yourself to him. And I think we fail to live into and up to the second promise when we continue to do these things. The second promise that we talk about today is, you will not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Now, a lot of classic translations will say uh, not to take the name of the Lord in vain. A lot of people think that that just means swearing, and I don't swear that often. So I'm good, right? That's not what it's talking about. It's not talking about your language necessarily. Again, Hebrew is really important here. So the Hebrew word for name, which is pronounced Shem, doesn't mean just the letters that spell your name. And I hate to burst your bubble, but the letters G-O-D does not spell God's name as though he has a name. The Hebrew people called him Yahweh, but they didn't even pronounce that because they had too much respect for who God was. God's name, the Hebrew word Shem, means more than just your letters. It means who you are, your reputation, your character. And seen in that light, what this is saying is that when you're God's covenant people, you won't defame God. You won't make wrongful use of the reputation of God. And that's what we do. That's what we do in all sorts of ways. When we, when we fail to live up to the first promise of having no other God but God, but we worship elements of our faith, when, when, when God said to the Israelites, I'm doing this so that you will be a light to the nations. I'm giving you a law so that when the world around you looks at you, they see the love I have, the care I have for you, the plans that I have, and they'll be attracted to me because of you. And as Christians, that's our calling under the new covenant of Jesus Christ that we would be a light for the people around us. But when the world sees Christians worshiping the religion more than God, when we make a bigger deal about laws in front of the courthouse and not in our own hearts, when we make a bigger deal about prayer in the classrooms and not in our own mouths, when we talk about Christian values in Washington, D.C., but not in our own homes, when we talk about what's wrong with the world today, but we don't cover what's wrong with the world in here, that is when we make a misrepresentation of the character of God. Anytime we use the name of the Lord as an excuse to judge or to criticize other people, that's failing to live into this promise. There's something to this. There's something to the, the language that the Bible uses to talk about where the law once lived and, and him wanting it to live in our hearts. And even going still further, this is what it says in Ezekiel, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away. You will no longer worship idols, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Again, using that same language to talk about what the law was once engraved on, that can still look like your heart, cold and unresponsive. Callous to the world around you, uninterested in how people perceive God's people and ultimately how they perceive the love that God has for them. 
There's a transformation that has to take place in our lives for us to get here, and I think that can only happen if we live into this third promise. Remember to observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. It's the only of the ten words that starts with the word remember. Remember who God is. Take a day a week at least to meditate on who he is, what he has done for you. Because when you do that, when you spend time remembering who God is in a day of rest, that is what softens your heart. That's what allows the Holy Spirit to get inside you and transform you into what God wants you to be individually, but as a church, God's light to the nations. To live into these promises and allow the world to see around us the love that God really has for them. So as we, as we wrap up our time, I want to encourage you to maybe look at these as three different stages and ask yourself where you are today in your relationship with God. Do you see him as, as some kind of list of rules, not a part of your life, but, but you know, an objective reality that if I follow these things and they, they live on stones and I'm worshiping them as artifacts, as, as icons, as idols of the faith? Is that God to you? His desire is that you would invite him in and they would, be, they would become a part of your own identity your internal reality, to move them from external to internal. Some of you might be there, but, but the stuff of your heart is still that stony substance that the law was on to begin with. And the next step is the transformation from, from cold unresponsiveness to the world to a tender, compassionate heart that looks at the world and says, God loves these people as much as he loves me. And how can I show them his love? How can I be a light to the world around me? And I think if we, if we look for these transformations to occur in our lives and we devote ourselves to the time of rest that God promises us, that's when I think we can become the church, the light to the nations that God desires so that all the world can see how much he loves them. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the time that you've given us here today uh, with, with our, our family to worship you. Uh, to learn from one another, to learn from your word. I pray that you would allow each one of us to be transformed in some capacity today. Maybe for some of us to invite you into our hearts for the very first time to let you become a part of who we are and our new identity. Maybe for some of us today, I pray that you would bring about a transformation in our hearts that allows us to become softened and compassionate to this world. For those of us who are there, I pray that you would help us to find other people in our community we can help on their journey. And for all of us, God, I pray that you would continue to make this your church, your covenant people, a light to the nations, so that when they see us, they identify with your true character of great, great love. Thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.